You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 18. And this morning, we're going to be reading verses 12 through 17. You'll find this in the Pew Bible on page 927. Acts chapter 18, verses 12 through 17 and you'll find it on page 927. Hear the word of God. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Lucius Junius Gallio became proconsul of Achaia near the close of Claudius's reign. His brother Seneca, of whom you've heard, referred to him, Gallio, as having a charming disposition. And by most accounts, Gallio was a very popular, amiable, upright, even-tempered man. History tells us that his contemporaries even went so far as to call him Sweet Gallio. And it was before this proconsul that Paul was indicted by the jealous Jews. He was accused of deceiving the Romans and propagating a false religion. Under ancient Roman law, Judaism was sanctioned as a legal religion. They could worship God according to their own law that was found in the Torah. And these Jews were arguing that Paul's gospel had nothing to do with the Jewish faith. It was, they said, no true form of Judaism, and therefore it should not be protected. Now Paul, hearing this, was ready and willing to give a defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ Because as Peter tells us, we're always to be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks us for a reason for the hope that is within us. And perhaps no one was more ready and better prepared for this than Paul. I'm sure that Paul could have told the court that he was in accord with the law. He could have said that Christianity was the fulfillment of Judaism. Moses foresaw a great prophet whom God would raise up in the future, and it was to this prophet that they were to listen and to obey whatever he said. 
And I'm sure that Paul would have tried to persuade them that Jesus Christ was that very prophet. But just about as he was ready to open his mouth and to begin his defense, Gallio spoke to the Jews. If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since this is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. Translated, if it was a crime against Roman law, I would adjudicate your case. But this isn't about theft or fraud or murder or rape. This has to do with religion. It's outside of my jurisdiction. And by the way, it's something of which I have no interest. I could care less. And one would have hoped that Gallio had been less careless about the true religion. Then again, he was probably equally indifferent to all religions, true or false. He was a Roman, and he was a magistrate, and that's about all that mattered to him. So Gallio drove them all away from the tribunal and had nothing more to do with them. And for this we can be thankful because he did recognize the limits of his jurisdiction. But he was pragmatic. He expressed no concern, you'll notice, over the beating of Sosthenes. Right in front of his tribunal, the Jews beat one of the believers. I do think that Sosthenes was likely a convert to Christianity, a friend of Paul. As a matter of fact, in his first epistle, Paul opens it by saying this, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth. So I think what's happening here is that because they couldn't prevail against Paul, they attacked his friend. So enraged had they been against the apostle that they vented their rage upon Sosthenes. And since Gallio refused to hear their case, they'd take matters into their own hands. Every man does what's right in his own eyes, right? And the proconsul paid no attention to any of this. He was entirely indifferent. He was wise in refusing the case against Paul, but foolish in his judgment. He affirmed limited government. Good thing. He failed to safeguard one of his own residents. And it illustrates, of course, that nobody's perfect. He can be strong in one area and weak in another. And sadly, that is the plight of the human race falling short of God's glory. So there's two applications. One is Christological and the other is anthropological. First, I believe this is an implicit exhortation to trust in the promise of Christ's care. You remember in the night vision how Jesus assured Paul that no one would harm him. And the incident here with Gallio and the Jews is a demonstration of that promise. Christ the King shielded his servant from physical harm and incarceration. He doesn't always do that. Sincere Christians have been, are, and will be imprisoned. That happens. But in this particular case, Jesus had made a specific promise to Paul, and he kept it. And just as Jesus preserved Paul, so he preserves all of his people in every age. If not temporally, at least eternally. 
Paul says in Ephesians 1, God put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. What a promise that is. Christ Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and earth to care for his people. He rules from sea to sea over every people group on planet earth. And nothing is outside of his sovereign power and his sovereign authority. Nothing. That's Paul's point. He's given as head over all things to and for the church. And he said to Paul, I have many in this city who are my people. His people are everywhere. His converts can be found all over the globe. Because he purchased us with his blood and he will not lose one redeemed soul. Neither Jews nor Greeks nor Romans nor any other kind of Gentiles are going to thwart his rule. And he providentially rules and he overrules all things and he preserves the saints. He knows our needs and our difficulties and our troubles. And he routinely intervenes, even though we may not see it. If we have eyes to see, we can observe it in his overruling providence. That's why the wise man tells us to trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. His love is tender, you know. Christ is fervent for his bride, the church such that he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. And there is no need for us to be anxious and no need for us to fear because Christ has complete control. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So at the very least, this text tells us to trust in him. But then secondly, anthropologically, It is an implicit illustration of guarding against the sin of indifference. In Hebrews 2, the apostle tells us this. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Now, we've heard this before, but somebody once asked a pastor, what shall I do to go to hell? And the pastor said, nothing. What shall we do if we neglect so great a salvation? We have in this passage three different perspectives on Jesus Christ. Two of them arise from unbelief and the other one from faith. And they represent views of our Savior that persist even in our day. The Jews were opposed to Christ. Paul was zealous for Christ and Gallio was indifferent. And all three find counterparts in our own generation and in every other generation in human history. Because we're told what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. So first of all, one perspective was that of the Jews who fiercely opposed the gospel. These are people whose hostility to Jesus is no secret from anyone. They are clear and outspoken about their unbelief, and the Bible calls them scoffers. Richard Dawkins is perhaps one of the most well-known and outspoken of contemporary atheists. You may have heard of him. 
He claims that religion subverts science, fosters fanaticism, and encourages bigotry. And he once claimed that parents who force religion upon their children are committing child abuse. Now, people like that are far from the kingdom. And they make oftentimes the godly groan. As David says in Psalm 119, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. This was godly sorrow. David is mourning not for himself. He's mourning because of others. And more importantly, he was grieved over the dishonor done to God's great name. And as zealous as Paul was for Christ, so were the Jews zealous for Judaism. And Jesus says to them, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. They were not happy with that, of course. You see, the entire human race is made up of two families. Believers are in the family of God, and unbelievers are in the family of the devil. Those aren't my words. Those are Jesus's words. Paul says unbelievers walk in trespasses and sins following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. There's a spirit at work among the disobedient human race. And they're called the devil's offspring and the serpent's seed and children of wrath. And the unbeliever, even though he or she may not admit it or know it, bears the image of the devil and obeys the commands of the devil and follows the example of the devil. He is an unwitting slave to sin and Satan, and he's in bondage with no hope of escape. And if this describes you, I feel sorry for you. Because having no hope, you are without God in the world. But then there's another perspective that of Paul the Apostle, who was zealous for the kingdom of God. And this is on the opposite side of the spectrum. It's a wholehearted trust and love for Christ. And few, if anybody else, has fulfilled the command of Jesus like the Apostle Paul. Remember what Jesus said? Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. Seek it above everything else. Make it your first priority. Put the kingdom at the center of your life. And Jesus warned against worldliness as one of the worst of sins. It's one of the great features of paganism and the unbelieving human race. They live only for the present. They give no thought to the world to come. To be consumed by the cares of this world is to be choked spiritually. And a worldly person has his treasure and his heart set squarely upon this earth. And so God promises his own children to provide for them, so give no thought to these things in the world. Let your greatest concern be the eschatological kingdom of Christ. That was Paul. That characterized his life. He was sold out for the Lord Jesus. He sought first and foremost to have his place in the kingdom of grace and glory. And if that's you, I rejoice because you have hope and God is with you in the world. Paul knew in whom he believed. 
and he was confident of eternal life. And his zeal for the gospel was demonstrated in his labors for the kingdom. Speaking of the false apostles, this is what Paul said in part. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. This man had been an extraordinary servant of Christ. Great labors, great sufferings. And so zealous for Jesus was Paul that his fellow Jews hated him for it. He even tells us that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And at no time after his conversion did he go a length of time without trials. He was not ashamed. He considered all of his sufferings an honor. And it's no different with the sincere Christian. She counts it all joy. Despite her circumstances, she rejoices in the hope of eternal life. She knows that deep down that this life is short and eternity is long. And she also knows that God has laid up for her a glorious inheritance. She agrees with the apostle. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Why, Paul? Why would you do that? Because the things that are seen are transient, temporary, fading. But the things that are unseen, that you can't see with the physical eye, eternal. And the prospect of eternal life and everlasting joy sustains her in the midst of her deepest struggles. And she sees all of her afflictions as a preparation for her life in heaven. So you put glory on one side of the scale and afflictions on the other side of the scale and they're light. Eternal glory in heaven far outweighs any worldly trouble and faith sees our sufferings as momentary. So that's the second perspective. You have the opposition and you have the zeal. Now there's a third. And it's that of Gallio, who was entirely indifferent to all of it. And you might think that this occupies some type of middle ground between the two, right? They're not zealous like Paul. They're not in opposition like the Jews. It's not like they're against Christ. They just don't give any thought to him. They're indifferent. They're unconcerned. They're calm, cool, placidly uninterested. But you know something? These are as much the enemies of Christ as those who are zealously opposed. Elder Parkin read this, whoever is not with me is against me. There's no middle ground. Gallio was very decent, sweet Gallio. He had a good temper. He was a faithful citizen. Apparently a loving brother to Seneca, but that's about as far as common grace can get you. He was not a Christian. And as surely as the unbelieving enemies of Christ go to hell, so do the unbelieving agnostics. Do you know what that word means? 
An agnostic is a person who claims neither to believe or to disbelieve in God. And as far as I can tell, agnostics really don't care that much to find out. At best, Gallio was a pragmatic, worldly, unbelieving agnostic. It's as if he was saying whether or not something can be known of God, I really don't care. It makes no difference to me whether you're a Christian or a Jew or a Gentile, whatever you are. And so here was this man, Gallio, the flower of the pagan culture and ambition. As a matter of fact, his brother Seneca said, no mortal man is so sweet to any single person as he is to all mankind. Gallio. But as indifferent as as indifferent to the Apostle Paul as he had been to the zealous Jews, he wouldn't listen. He cared nothing for either one of them. He wouldn't even let Paul speak. Would that he had known this seemingly insignificant event would be infamous. Who would have guessed that it would be forever recorded in history as Gallio's epitaph? It's the only scene in the whole life of this Roman magistrate in which history has any interest. (laughs) He threw away the greatest opportunity of this life to gain immortality. He refused to let Paul speak. He muzzled the preacher. He sealed his doom. And it was all because he was so indifferent to the truths of Christianity. And how many do the same thing today when they deprive themselves of the word of God? There's a Bible on the shelf, but the dust on the cover proves that it hasn't been opened in weeks, months, perhaps even years. They don't listen to preaching. They don't care about teaching. The word plays no part in their lives. They spurn the very means that God has appointed for saving their souls. And perhaps the press summary of this kind of life is found in the concluding verse, verse 17. Gallio paid no attention to any of this. He was indifferent to the Jews, to Paul, to the crowd, to Sosthenes, unconcerned about them, cared little for them, unmoved by them. And it was magisterial indifference at its worst. And I'll say today that I think the largest group in the world seems to be the followers of Gallio. They don't care about Christ. There's no interest in the gospel. They're worldly and wholly indifferent. And they behave as if all they had was their physical body and no soul. It's as if they say, even if we had a soul, it's of use only to animate the body so we can do something in this world. And they don't know Jesus, and they care not to meet him, and they've never been concerned about him. There's no concern for God or for their own eternal destiny. There's no grief over sin and no joy for salvation. There's no rejoicing in the glory of Christ and no trepidation at the malice of Satan. They're indifferent. And whether Christianity sinks or swims is of no interest to them. Thomas Manton is right when he says, dead fish swim with the stream in every carnal heart with the culture. Some are bitterly opposed to Christ, but these are simply indifferent to him. And you know what Jesus says? 
He tells the church, mind you, at Laodicea, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. In other words, he would have us declare ourselves either for or against him. Enough of the apathy and indifference, he says. Lukewarm members make me sick. Matthew Henry says, if religion is worthy of anything, it's worth everything. If the offer of eternal life be true, can we really defend any kind of indifference? You see, at the end of the day, the devil cares not whether you are opposed to Christ or indifferent to Christ, because both are going to hell. If he can destroy a soul by arousing enmity in the heart, he'll do that. If he can ruin another soul by lulling him into indifference, he's going to do that. And there are so many today, like myself on Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday, who grow indifferent. Isn't it a struggle? They think they're happy, but deep down they have no peace, no joy, no true happiness. And even as Christians, we struggle here. Mind you, those Gallios of the 21st century are as wicked as the rest. And God is dishonored and truth is violated and the Sabbath is profaned and the duty is neglected. So let's resolve, brothers and sisters, as we approach the table of our Lord to live by faith and to strive with every nerve for godliness. Not only assent to the truth. I know everybody in here would assent to these truths, but to receive and to rest upon Christ and his righteousness. That was the question that we recited. That's justifying faith, saving faith. It's the kind of faith that leads to salvation. And people who are true Christians will be in this world a very strange phenomenon. We're going to be the world's wonder if we're true Christians, as we deny ourselves and mortify sin and love our neighbors. That's strange. It's so countercultural to the grab all the gusto mentality of the world. Peter says they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. They malign you. The sincere Christian will be the world's wonder. But the sincere Christian will also be the world's reproof. As she strives to be innocent as dove and shrewd as a serpent. Isn't this what's said about Noah? By faith, being warned by God concerning events not as yet unseen. In reverent fear, he constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And by this strange phenomenon, obedience to God, he condemned the world. Will be the world's wonder. Will be the world's reproof. And finally, will be the world's conviction as we strive to reflect very dimly, but sincerely, the very, very character of God himself. By striving to live godly lives and serve as a living, breathing reproof to evil, we can't help but convict the world. And this is possible only by the blessing of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's pray for the power of grace 
and the beauty of holiness and the efficacy of that glorious new birth to be evident in our lives. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do pray as we have considered these three perspectives on Jesus, that you would give us the power of grace, that our lives might reflect the character of Christ himself, and that you would give us the beauty of holiness, which could be an aroma of life to others, and as well the efficacy of the new birth, as those graces that the Spirit implants would be so stirred up, increased, and strengthened, as that we would more and more reflect his nature. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.